Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. And on this evening's space adventure, well, we'll take a look at last night's federal budget. And then we take a detailed and extensive look at Victoria's space opportunities. Yes, Victoria, the Garden State... State on the move, whatever the number plates say these days. We'll have a look at that. And, uh, oh, get your diary handy, because uh, there's going to be an eclipse. And there's also an event that you might like to participate in as well. We'll tell you about that. And then we're going to have a look at our home planet. And uh, in particular, we'll be looking at the Suomi and NPP satellites. So, without any further ado, let's get into our special news. Yesterday evening at 7.30, I tuned in to hear Jim Chalmers deliver his budget. Well, listen as I might, I heard not a mention of space. Outer space, that is. So, this morning I downloaded the budget papers and searched for space, satellites, and astronomy. Well, there were lots of references to green space, around housing, and to head space, mental health services. And then I found a few references. In budget paper number one, it discussed the liability for damages caused by space and certain high-power rocket activities, and the liability that's been allocated to that has been unchanged. Budget paper two, no, nothing. Budget paper three, no. And then budget paper four, an agency outcome statement for the Bureau of Meteorology. Quote, provision of space weather services, but no money mentioned. And then I went into the portfolio budget statements, and then I hit pay dirt. First of all, the one that I've been particularly tracking since it was released in November of last year, the Earth Observation from Space Roadmap was mentioned. And then the Department of Defence collaboration to ensure a complementary approach between civil space industry development and activity and defence's space responsibilities and interests. Finally, I found some numbers. The Space Infrastructure Fund. Now, this is where it was a bit confusion. On page 47, it said movement between years, and it said $1.1 million in 2021 to 22, nothing in 22 to 23, and $1.1 million in 23 to 24, and nothing thereafter. Now, that was movement between years. On page 50... These were the allocations. 3.198 million in 2122, 0.6 of a million in 2223, and for 2324, 1.1 million, and nothing mentioned thereafter. So there is some funding for the Space Infrastructure Fund. Then growing Australia's space industry. Ah, there is some money allocated here. First of all, there's $4.974 million in the 21-22 year. Then it bumps up to $44.5 million 
in 22 to 23, $63 million in 23 to 24, $59 million in 24 to 25, and $15 million in 25 to 26. There's also the international space investment. Now, this is $7.109 million in 21-22, $6.391 million in 22-23, six million million in 23-24, another $6 million in 24-25, and $5.69 million in 25-26. And then, rather curiously, it said support for the National Space Mission for Earth Observation not for publication. Aha! What's that all about? Not for publication. Support for the National Space Mission for Earth Observation. Now that's the uh, $2.1 billion that the uh, May budget had uh, to be spent over several years and it's not for publication. Hmm. Further down, we find Geoscience Australia is working with the Australian Space Agency and other partners to support the implementation of the Earth Observations from Space Technology Roadmap. And the other partners, turns out one of them is CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organisation. And it says also under Geoscience Australia, also to develop a roadmap for positioning, navigation and timing. Well, given that some of those things were clear as mud, I, well, I had tried uh, contacting, uh, and last week I asked for an interview with uh, Mr. Husek, the uh, minister, Responsible, and uh, he turns out he's not available. Well, fair enough, he's a pretty busy guy. And I also contacted the Space Industry Association of Australia for comment, and the the Industry Association, which, by the way, is not to be confused with the Space Association of Australia, which presents this radio program. I'm talking here now about the Space Industry Association of Australia, and I got an automated reply, we will get in contact. And that was last week, and I haven't had any further contact with them. So a few minutes ago, I spoke with Mr. Husek's staff and was told there had been no change in the funding of space programs. Uh, I was also told that some had been under review. And uh, there's a suggestion that there might still be some under review. So it looks like the National Space Mission funding for Earth observation, $2.1 billion, still stands. But it's NFP, not for publication, in the budget papers. Well, let's now wind the clock back to 2019. The... Engineers Australia held an event and it was introduced by Peter Moore of La Trobe University and uh, the topic of discussion was Victorian Space Opportunities. So let's go to the uh, Engineers Australia in Melbourne. Mark Fitnock is a Victorian trained aerospace engineer from Monash University who was involved in NASA's recent InSight Mars uh, mission. InSight, interior exploration using seismic investigations, geodesy and heat transport, is the first robotic explorer to study the interior structure of Mars. Mark's creation, Susanna, is the probe which burrowed five metres below the surface. So Mark Fitok is an Australian space engineer who moved to Europe in 2007 to pursue his passion for space. He began at the German Aerospace Centre, running a program to launch student experiments on rockets and balloons, which is pretty damn exciting. There he also developed and built the surface segment for the DLR HP3 experiment for NASA's InSight mission, a digging probe that landed on Mars at the end of November 2018. Mark currently works at OHB in Bremen. OHB is <laughs> Germany's largest satis- satellite manufacturer. Second largest. Second largest. Is Airbus the other one? 
Yeah, we won't mention that. Um, as project manager and systems engineer on future exploration and science missions, including ESA's HERA mission, that shall investigate the effect of impacting asteroids as part of the joint NASA-ESA asteroid impact and detection assessment studies. As I introduce them, so we have Dr. Rebecca Allen from Swinburne University. Uh, Rebecca completed her PhD in astrophysics at Swinburne University of Technology. Galaxies are enormous structures that contain vast amounts of stars, planets, dust, gas, and even mysterious dark matter. Dr. Allen's research focuses on understanding how galaxies grow and evolve with time, going all the way back to when the universe was barely a billion years old. To comprehend how these giant systems change with time, she uses data from telescopes across the world and even the Hubble Space Telescope. When she's not studying uh, galaxies, she uses her ex expertise and enthusiasm to communicate the wonders of the universe to others and create unique learning experiments for students or experiences. Some of her recent efforts in this area include school engagement for Swinburne's Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing and public engagement for National Science Week through the Virtual Astronomy Experience, SciVR. She even gets to help secondary students design, build and program their own. Our other panellist, Matthew Bricali. Matthew is a passionate aerospace research and development engineer in the field of rocket and high-speed air-breathing propulsion. He currently works as a research fellow and team lead with RMIT on a cooperative research centre project that aims to develop the next generation propulsion technologies for high-speed aircraft. Prior to this role, Matthew worked as the propulsion system analyst with the orbital rocket startup Rocket Lab during the research and development stage of the Electron launch vehicle. And I think a lot of people know about um, Rocket Lab, the exciting New Zealand company with their own launch facilities, launching um, payloads into space. It's been amazing what they've achieved in such a short space of time. And uh, I think also the New Zealand government has a lot to, uh, a lot to um, uh, be thanked for or congratulated on in, in making that happen. So we uh, look forward to seeing the same in Australia. In his role, he helped to refine and optimise Rutherford rocket engine's main propulsion components, such as the main combustion chamber, regenerative cooling systems, electro pumps, injectors and nozzles extension. It's all exciting stuff. I love this. This work was recently recognised with the Rocket Lab propulsion team, of which Matthew was named, being awarded the 2018 Royal Aeronautical Society Gold Medal for contributions to innovation, art and science. To date, Rocket Lab have had three successful missions that have delivered payload into low Earth orbit. Matthew holds a PhD conferred by the University of Queensland Centre for Hypersonics. Matthew also teaches the subject of thermo fluids and propulsion at RMIT. So a round of applause again and thank you for joining the panel. It's not hard to see why space is exciting when I get to read out these bios and see presentations like this. So I um, would like to start the panel discussion. The topic is pretty much focusing on Australia, Victoria's involvement in this exciting space industry that's opening up before us. We've just founded a, an Australian space agency. I think it was announced at the IAC in Adelaide last year. It's officially started on July 1 this year. Its aim, one of its goals, is to triple the size of the industry as it currently stands. So... Space, space industry, covers a broad range of topics, but generally people speak about the upstream uh, segment and the downstream segment. We've got the space segment where we actually create the infrastructure, the assets that go into space. We've got the downstream aspect of the space industry, and that is pretty much the processing of all the data from those space assets, but also when it comes to astrophysics and uh, exploring galaxies, there's also the big data and artificial intelligence involved in that. So our three panellists are going to clearly and concisely explain everything about not just Australia, but also how the rest of the planet's going to um, make the most of, of this opportunity. So if I'll just ask the panel members, you've got a microphone there, if you can just share that, share that amongst yourselves. If you can just make an opening statement about your thoughts on Australia establishing a space agency and what, what implications that would uh, imply and what should Australia do? 
to make sure we follow through on all that amazing enthusiasm. Uh, so I think one of the great things I've not noticed, but it's been hammered home uh, on this trip back to Australia for myself, is the Australian passion for space. And the, the Space Agency, I think, is one component of that. Uh, now to have that as a, as a central organisational body um, to help work on building the space industry within Australia, I think that passion that Australians have uh, to, for space and space endeavours is that thing that will really begin the push to drive forward. And the next step will be investment, investment in uh, technology, investment in people and investment in missions in the future. Um, yeah, my, uh, my thoughts are uh, the space agency will provide a means to coordinate with other space agencies around the world and allow collaboration to happen on a formal government level. I think that's fantastic and that's really what it's there to do and to spur the private sector to, you know, develop com uh, companies such as Rocket Lab uh, within Australia. I think um, Australia should have some national goals um, and they shouldn't just be the downstream uh, applications, but also the upstream. So maybe looking at um, developing our own satellites here, maybe looking at launch later on. I'm not sure what comes first, but we should definitely be setting some, some goals. So I certainly think um, in my experience and being here part of this talk today, Australia has the talent. Um, to be a leader in the space industry, but also you have the infrastructure. And as an astronomer, you know, we get to see the Parkes Radio Telescope, which in its history, you know, has been fundamental in telemetry and tracking satellites, but also monitoring the very first mission to another uh, planet, Mariner 2, and tracking the Voyager spacecraft as they leave our solar system. So space industries across the world have been using, you know, your technology. And so now I think it's time to really capitalize on that and, you know, be part of what's going on with the, the data that's coming from satellites, but then also to be using your brain power for Australia and, and not to be taking that to other countries. There's nothing wrong with collaboration. You know, you can still go to Germany or even JPL in America, but I think it's important to have have your own representation here in Australia. Yeah, we've got some significant assets in Australia when it comes to astronomy. Uh, and I think with a square kilometre array as well, we're, we're world leading in that space. Um, we were on the cutting edge and the forefront of, of space in terms of launching assets into space, but uh, we seem to have lost the leading position there. But it looks like uh, with all the advancements in the technology now, CubeSats, nanosats, so we've got an opportunity to get back into it. So um, maybe Mark, um, I'd like to ask you, because you've also got that global experience, what should the Space Agency do to help others follow a path that, that you've followed? There's certainly something that uh, can be done immediately, I think, is uh, looking in terms of that younger generation of engineers and and scientists, if we're going to be a little bit more broad about it. Uh, so things like mobility grants, helping them to move around and gain the experience that they can bring back, uh, be it short term or longer term, uh, that's certainly something that can be done today. That's something that uh, a lot of universities are looking at. Um, some certainly work on already very intensely. That's something that the Space Agency can support and really build upon. I think all the panel members tonight have extensive experience outside of Australia. And personally... I also believe um, sending our young talent to live and work overseas in these organisations adds value uh, back to Australia in terms of the networks developed and also the projects that they will bring back with them eventually once they, they come back home. So I don't know about yourself, Matthew, but um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and no, I, I just want to ditto Mark's opinion. Um, I personally spent one year in exchange uh, at an aerospace and space university in Europe as well, um, and I think that's critical. It's it's working with the best, um, looking outward, and then bringing that expertise back to Australia. 
When I was uh, actually recently in Pasadena, I got to have a tour of JPL from the former manager of the Micro Devices Lab. And actually, I also got to see some of the robotics labs. And two people I spoke to there, one of them worked with Robo Simeon, which is, you know, trying to develop this really autonomous, you know, technology where if we're sending a robot to a moon off Saturn or Jupiter, we can't say, oops, like, don't go down there or take a left turn. It's got to be able to figure this stuff out. Well, he was from Australia. And so I think part of it is, you know, having experience at different um, industries, but also I don't want somebody to have to go to America or Europe if they really want to work in space industry. I think it's also about providing opportunities here as well. And I think the universities are doing a really good job of that now. Um, I was just going to point out, it's a fun fact, um, at Rocket Lab, I think 50% of the staff were Australian when I was there. <laughs> but it's a New Zealand company. Yeah. <laughs> US. Oh, okay. Mark, did you want to add a comment? or? have a natural grip on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any questions? Um, we can have some questions from the floor if you'd like to ask the panel. Okay, do we have the roving mic? You mentioned at the beginning that there's 2,000 people currently employed in the space industry in Australia. Uh, I think that would surprise most people sitting here. Uh, my question is to the panel, where are they? <laughs> I guess I'm the wrong one to answer that one since I was the one who left, so I'll pass that on. I've been thinking about this and I... My theory is that a lot of it is uh, in procurement of overseas. I, I don't know. Um, it's all that downstream uh, analysis, I suppose, um, ground station stuff. It is uh, exactly in that satellite monitoring and developing ground stations, but I think a lot of that is also uh, an outlook in, into the numbers of people that will be employed here as well in those sectors. Yeah. I, I'd also uh, reinforce those comments in that, as I mentioned before, you've got your upstream side of space industry and downstream side. Where we are world leading and the majority of the jobs are pretty much on the downstream side. Getting access to that imagery from space, communications, GPS, positioning, accuracy, that's where the majority of those jobs are. Who writes these media releases and what they think, um, they may, I'd be asking them to explain the exact breakdown of that 2,300, but I think the majority is downstream. But we're increasing the jobs on, on the upstream and, and building equipment at an exponential rate. That's where it comes back to a national goal. Is, is, there, a, is there a desire to develop our own Indigenous satellite that is bigger than a CubeSat, maybe um, something on the order of 150 kilos to serve Australia's interests um, instead of getting data from other nations? Look, Australia is also 0.3% of the world population. You know, that means 99.7% of any activity is outside of Australia, and we just do not have uh, the population base and economy to be able to fund these um, space agencies that, you know, the US, ESA, Europe, Germany, China can fund. So naturally, they're going to generate the majority of the jobs, but um, as we've already heard from some of the panel members, um, I think it's quite easy for Australians to embed themselves in these organisations, as I have myself, and I place my students. I'm at La Trobe University Engineering Department. I've worked in Germany. I've worked for the German Aerospace Centre, pretty much still do, and I place my, my students to work there because they have infrastructure we do not have, um, and we've got talent. We've got heaps of talent, and why tell them you cannot leave our borders? Um, I say let them go, let them have these experiences, de develop those connections and bring back you know, pretty much that brain gain. It's not a brain drain. There's only so much Australia can underpin in terms of being a space-faring nation building probes like InSight. I do just want to jump on the keyword there um, with the economy. And one thing that is really important for Australia, as outlined in the World Economic Forum's report, is what kind of products does Australia export? And, you know, really on, in terms of technology, there, you know, Australia is posed to be able to produce amazing technology. I mean, look at CSIRO, but it's just not happening at the rate that you see in other countries. And I think having your own space agency will help, you know, push some of that forward. And that's critical for Australia's economy moving forward. We will return to 
the Engineers Australia meeting in Melbourne after these messages. Oh, and diary time coming up, so please have your diary handy because we have several entries for you to put in it. Southern FM. The sounds of the Bayside. I asked you to keep your diary handy. Open it or scroll, whichever, whether you're electronic or paper, uh, to the 7th to 11th of November. Yep, not very far away. Well, this event is going to be held at the University of Technology in Sydney, both in person, in other words, you rock up there yourself, or virtual, which means you can do it online from anywhere in the world, including from here in Melbourne. And this is the fourth annual Humans in Space Summit. The topics to be covered are space biology, space health, human spaceflight, lunar biology, woman in space, and space plant biology. And uh, it will include speakers from the Australian Space Agency, Deloitte Australia, the University of Wollongong, Swinburne University of Technology from here in Melbourne, at the University of Adelaide, Mawson Rovers of Australia, Digital Blast of Japan, Mitsui Busan Aerospace of Japan, NASA, America's Space Agency, uh, the University of California, San Diego, Yes, and right close to home, the University of Melbourne and RMIT, and also from the Australian National University and the Australian Centre for Astrobiology. So a lot of participants there, a lot of things to hear on. And this is the fourth annual Humans in Space Summit at the University of Technology, Sydney, from the 7th to the 11th of November. Now, tickets cost between $10 and $40, depending on the sessions attended and whether you're going to be there in person or online. So look that up for the annual Humans in Space Summit. Something to really look forward to. And let's uh, now do the night sky. Keep your diary handy. On November the 8th, there will be a total lunar eclipse. So that's November the 8th. So in your diary, November 8th, total lunar eclipse. Now, it starts at 7.02 p.m. All these times are p.m. The penumbral starts. And then the partial eclipse starts. And that's about when the moon rises here in Melbourne. And that'll be at... uh, 8.09 Australian Eastern Daylight Time. So that's the partial eclipse. That's when you can really start to notice things. The penumbral part is when you, when the moon is in the earth, partial part of the earth shadow, but it's hard to notice it visually. But partial starts, that's when you start to see the shadow creeping across the moon. And uh, that partial part will be on the lower right-hand side of the moon so it starts to go dark from the lower right-hand side and totality that moon will be totally in the earth shadow Um, and I should explain a total lunar eclipse uh, is when the moon passes through the shadow of the earth so it happens at full moon and uh, so the total part starts at 9.17. The middle of the eclipse is at 9.59, just before 10 o'clock. And then the total phase ends at 10.42. And then the partial eclipse ends at 11.49. And that's when you'll see the daylight um, approaching across the moon. Again, this lit part will come from the lower right side and move up towards the upper left of the moon. Okay, 
And uh, the penumbral part, which is the part you couldn't really tell the difference from, it ends at uh, just before one o'clock in the morning of the following day. Now, this is quite an important eclipse for us here in Australia because it's the last total lunar eclipse until 2025, March the 14th. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> you've got three years to wait if you, want, if you miss this one before there'll be another uh, total lunar eclipse. By the way, there is an uh, eclipse of the sun happening, but only visible from the northern hemisphere, so we won't see it here in Australia. So once again, November the 8th, eclipse starting at moonrise in the east at nine minutes past eight. And the moon will be very high in the sky when it ends. So just how dark the moon will go will depend on a number of factors, including how cloudy it is around the limb of the earth and also on how much volcanic dust and other materials are in the earth's atmosphere. And so the moon usually goes a, a, a sort of a reddish color, a coppery sort of color. Sometimes it goes almost totally black. It just depends on how much what's happening around the limb of the earth when the sun shines through the earth's atmosphere and gets refracted onto the moon. So November 8 in your diary. And now on the space show, we return to the Engineers Australia meeting held Early in 2019, a panel discussion on Victorian space opportunities. Another question from the gentleman in the dark green shirt. Hi, my name is Keith. I'm a student studying aerospace engineering at Monash. Respect. Um, my question comes really stems from one of your statements before that you said, Mark, about what the, um, the Australian Space Agency can do for students. On the other side, what can students do for Australia right now to help sort of explore and expand that sort of excitement for the space industry? Well, that's a pretty tough question, I think. Uh, so one of the things I've noticed, uh, I, was, I was out at Monash last week and visiting the Nova Rover team, uh, and they're doing some fantastic work there. Uh, these are the sort of things that, to be honest, didn't exist when I studied. Um, the, there's the high-power rocketry team. So, so these sort of things have, have just grown from um, looking back at a bunch of people in a park launching off little rockets uh, and now they're, they're doing quite serious engineering work uh, towards the, the space field and to be honest um, that's good we, we notice so so to say as a somebody who's overseas looking back we're seeing skills coming from uh, young engineers from people who are still students uh, that we weren't seeing as much before and I think working on those practical experiments um, or practical projects starting to understand what the life cycle of a space mission is like if you're talking about spacecraft or an experiment uh, these sort of skills are really useful and you can build them as a student uh, and so as students um, supporting those projects getting involved in those projects and finding those opportunities is a great first step okay one one more question uh hi i'm alex and just on regard in regards to the economics problem you were talking about before why couldn't Australia just focus on what we're good at? So you said our exports, I can see that we are quite good at mining and our exports in that are insane worldwide. So why can't we focus on that as sort of like a stopgap uh, to just reduce the amount of pressure that is inherent in all the missions and research that we have to do for a mission? That's a very complicated question, and the answer is right now that is what Australia is doing. Um, but you can't depend on minerals forever, and you know some of these resources are finite, and it costs a lot of money to mine them. And the thing is, when, when you're looking at it in an economic perspective, that's a single product. You're just putting out one material. And so when you have a more advanced product, ultimately you're going to, your economy is going to do better because you're, you're putting out more than just materials. And I think that's related also to the fact that Australia's an intelligent population. Like we're, we've been talking about, we have all this talent. You can do more than mining. And that's what the world is looking for. And they're waiting for Australia to come forward. Also um, spin-offs from, you know, space um, in other sectors. So it's a great investment um, into your talented engineers and young people that can then spin off into other sectors that are more profitable, like mining. Um, and even using stuff in mining. 
Yeah, yeah. It mining is is quite challenging. I mean, there's there's lots of technology going into that. So, and also there's the nation building aspect um, that you can bring into it. Um, people enjoy hearing about space and makes them feel happy, which may make them more productive. So there's many um, implicit benefits. Yeah, I have to also um, add to that question. There are other nations that are heavily reliant on natural resources for generating revenue, and they've, I think, three, four decades ago, their government has created a sovereign fund whereby all money generated from those revenues, or a lot of it, goes into funding their knowledge economy and underpinning strategic initiatives such as investing in space and space industries. So I think Australia should have done that long ago. And we shouldn't be fighting over crumbs, which we are. Um, and a lot of space agencies that have come to Australia in the past, you know, you have to resource your part of a mission if you want to be an official partner. The expectation is you put money on the table, and I think for too long, Australia has been having a free ride. Right, one very last question. My name's Phil. I'm, I'm from America, so I had the opportunity to work in fence side of uh, aerospace. But my question is, you know, we all, the space station and everything, I have concerns about resources because you're going to be fighting against frigate program, submarine program, all these other programs going on. What's your thoughts about bringing in the big boys, Rayathon, uh, Hercules, all the firms I've worked for over in the States and got a lot of technology and worked with people. Biggest thing I see here, I'll say for engineers, is, that, is getting the opportunity to do the things. I had a lot of opportunity in the States because it was just a bigger community. What's your thoughts about the big boys and about the fence? I don't, I don't have much of a perspective on space. Um, so one of the things for Australia, uh, so I can talk about the science and exploration side a little bit better. Um, it's a almost purely uh, institutional market, and that's part of the thing about coming along with your own money, as was mentioned before. Um, so I certainly see, and it's, uh, another company that is very active in Europe is very interested in activity in Australia, um, but where Australians will get more opportunities with some of those big players within the space industry is coming with some money, um, coming with investment, um, and also having the people and the technology available to take part. Yeah, I had the opportunity a few years ago to the American, the National Space Symposium. And so when you go there, you see space industry, but it's also um, Air Force and military. And what you appreciate there is that through the cooperation, you know, you're able to have all of these advances and opportunities. Um, what I would like to challenge America, though, is to actually really look at what they're doing and and use it. You know, at this talk, Bill Nye was telling them, why aren't we using more of this to address global warming and some of these big questions? And so, you know, it's this balance between profit uh, and protecting and having, you know, this power structure, but also then using that for pure science, which, you know, I can appreciate as an astronomer going out and having these research goals and ideas, and then you make it a reality through engineering and creating. So we want to see these things, you know, come back to the science where we continue you know, that cycle of, you know, development. I didn't quite understand your question. Um, are you, were you asking uh, or saying that Australia should engage with the big boys, i.e. Boeing, and bring them in to help us develop our capability? Yeah, I think what's happened in the past is it's just been all outsourced. And so I think that's absolutely fine what you're saying, but it needs to be, you know, it, it needs to be built in Australia and Australian engineers need to be touching it. They need to be getting the technical skills. Um, I think that would be the ideal scenario, right? Why do you want to reinvent the wheel when other people already have the expertise? So, yes. Well, one very, very last question from the audience here. I came to Australia after working for NASA, actually. Um, I was recruited 30 years ago. And I was very disappointed to see that uh, nobody wants to pick up new... I mean, the space program is not only just launching things into space. Uh, NASA has brought in a lot of products, a lot of uh, uh, new materials that are used in everyday life. And the Australians, I tried to introduce various technologies here, 
Um, and there was very, very little interest from uh, regular industry. And I worked at RMIT. I had a research lab, but that's, that was all. And this was not picked up but by anybody. And in general, Australia is, Australia is known of not picking up inventions that were made in Australia or things like that. And I, from one businessman told me, oh, we don't um, let the Americans and the Japanese develop things and we'll buy them. Uh, th with this attitude, and unfortunately, uh, it's changing but very, very slowly. And with this attitude, it's not going to advance Australia very much. I, I will, you know, say that when um, Von Braun first decided, you know, that we can build this rocket and we can go to the moon, there were even people in America that were like, I don't know, like that's a pretty radical idea. And I appreciate that maybe Australia hasn't been on the forefront of a lot of these technological advances, but I think with the space agency – Hopefully, like that is going to be something that's kind of a catalyst to continue that because, I mean, you look at CSIRO and the organi that organization, they've built some of these instruments, you know, such as the mirrors for the JWS, the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be Hubble's predecessor. So, um, predecessor, follower. Yeah, thank you, successor. Wrong vocabulary word. And so, you know, there is some of that. Um, I guess kind of inspiration, but you know whether it grows and becomes a large scale thing, I think it also has to do. I do go back to the the population uh, argument as well and and so uh, that 's kind of what I love about Australia coming from America is that it is a bit different, and i don 't think that 's something that you guys should lose as a country um, i 've lived here for almost seven years, so I could say it 's kind of my home now too, and I think there 's something that is in, kind of important in that too, a lesson that can be taken. I do have a last question for Mark. It's, it's from a, a secret admirer. They're a bit too embarrassed to ask the question, but you've worked in all those multicultural teams with all these individuals from numerous countries, and there's obviously been challenges with languages and different, dare I say, work ethics and approaches to getting work done. Um, what have you learnt during your time on such missions, and uh, what, what should you um, focus on? What are the main tips on being successful in those environments and what do you have to look out for? Um, the last part might be the hardest, the what to look out for. I think, I don't think between uh, different cultural backgrounds you, you have to look out for different things. I try to treat everybody more or less the same. Um, people prove themselves through hard work, proving themselves as dependable, proving themselves as honest. Uh, and that's something you can get from any cultural background. And um, certainly, uh, <laughs> so I was ironically, or maybe not so ironically, the chatterbox in my team, uh, I was often getting called out on the comms to uh, yeah, button up a little. Um, so certainly my team had to deal with uh, some of my cultural quirks as well. Uh, and we had other team members who were very quiet. Um, but we, or I would like to think, especially within that core team who worked on the, on the support system assembly, uh, a lot of what we did is we took people with those backgrounds, maybe they'd be cultural or technical or experience, and fit their role to them, uh, find the tasks that they were, were good at and give them to them to own them. Uh, and that was a really good way of leveraging those very different backgrounds uh, that our team had, the different levels of experience especially. Uh, we saw both that combination of those with more experience uh, looking after things, but also those with less growing within the project and taking on more and uh, spreading the load within the team until we had a really great team. Uh, well, we always had a really great team, but it only got better and better building towards the end of the project. And it was a team I'm very proud to have worked together with. Recorded by the Space Show at Engineers Australia right here in Melbourne in 2019. That discussion on Victorian space opportunities. 88.3 Southern FM. On air and online via the free Community Radio Plus app. Download it now from the App Store or Google Play. Earth below us. Drifting, falling, floating, weightless. Calling, calling home. Welcome to episode 45 of our Planet Earth series in which we look at our home planet. Earth. 
below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. The Suomi National Polar Orbiting Platform Satellite otherwise known as Suomi NPP, has been in orbit for more than 10 years. It was conceived as a bridge between many of the Earth-observing system satellite capabilities of the 1990s and 2000s and what became the Joint Polar Satellite System of the 2010s. Suomi NPP is a joint venture between two United States government agencies, NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The satellite was named to honour Werner Suomi, a pioneer in early meteorological satellite observations. It carries five Earth-observing instruments that take measurements similar to several instruments on the three Earth-observing system flagship missions. These three satellites are called Terra, Aqua and Aura. As their names suggest, their primary foci are land, sea and air. The first joint polar satellite was called JPSS-1 before launch. Once in orbit around the Earth in 2017, it was renamed NOAA-20, this being the 20th low-orbit satellite operated by NOAA since 1970. Three more JPSS launches are planned over the next decade, continuing these vital weather and environmental observations into the 2030s. JPSS is scheduled for launch in September of this year, or at least it was, uh, and was to be renamed NOAA 21 if the launch and checkout were successful. The launches of JPSS 3 and JPSS 4 are planned on successive five year intervals after the JPSS launch. Ten years ago, a remarkable suite of instruments took to the skies aboard the first of a series of polar orbiting weather satellites known as the Joint Polar Satellite System. This is the story of the satellite that led the way. It has measured storms, fires, volcanoes, and oceans, changing the way we view the Earth, improving our weather forecasts, and carrying on critical long-term measurements of our planet. Three, two, main engine start, one, zero, and liftoff. On October 28, 2011, the Sumi NPP satellite lifted off on a Delta II rocket from Vandenberg, California. Named after Werner Sumi, who invented the first spin-scan camera to observe weather from space, the satellite marked the beginning of another new era, the Joint Polar Satellite System a mission to provide valuable weather and environmental data into the 2030s. And during the last decade, Sumi NPP has become well known for its blue marble images and also its day-night band, which show us power outages after storms and human activities at night, such as highways, sea travel, and natural gas flares. Continuing observations begun by satellites like NASA's Terra, Aqua, and Aura, it allows for a number of products that help people on the ground. Its data allows us to map wildfires, track the movement of wildfire smoke, and then measure the air quality as that smoke moves through an area. Measure the insides of hurricanes and reveal the structure and intensity of a storm and the ocean surface temperature that fuels it. Track the health of major crops worldwide by showing how they're impacted by weather and temperature. And measure emissions from volcanoes that help determine air quality and visibility for pilots. Over the last 10 years, NPP data has increased our understanding of major events, like the life cycle of Hurricane Sandy, the carbon released by Australian bushfires, 
Saharan dust storms across the Atlantic, and emissions decreases from the global pandemic. The Joint Polar Satellite System's next satellite launched six years later in 2017, and its sister satellites will launch over the next decade, continuing these kinds of vital measurements in the years to come. Good afternoon. I'm Sacha Kalori. I'm the program scientist for the NOAA Joint Polar Satellite System. GPSS is celebrating 10 years of its first risk reduction satellite, SOMI and PP. SOMI and PP heralded new measurements in LEO orbit for our NOAA. This includes the VIRS image that has a day-night band. It has infrared channels that are designed to measure very high temperatures. VIRS temperature measurements are used to measure fire radiator power, which measures emissions from forest fires in California. I can see aerosols and dust and smoke traveling across the continental US. It has the advanced microwave sounder or ATMS, and it also has the ozone sounder called OMS as well as an infrared sounder. And these four sensors together on SUOMI and PP heralded new observations to NOAA. While SUOMI and PP celebrating 10 years uh, this year, NOAA 20 that was launched after SUOMI and PP continues to perform flawlessly in orbit. And in 2022, we plan to launch the next satellite, JPSS-2. Thank you. And SUOMI NPP has many unique capabilities. Among them is a day-night camera that has allowed for significant advances in our ability to monitor the Earth at night. These show electrical storms, volcanic glow, city lights, highways, and guarded national frontiers. The images are used to track power outages after storms. Flares from gas wells also reveal themselves. Selected science products from Suomi NPP and NOAA 20 are used to produce unified multi-decadal data records that are key to understanding and quantifying global change. For the last decade, a wealth of essential data has been streaming back to Earth from satellites in the Joint Polar Satellite System, a collaboration between NASA and NOAA. Onboard suites of instruments measure nearly everything you can think of. Over land, they measure vegetation, fires, droughts, snowfall, and ice cover, just to name a few. Over the oceans, sea surface temperatures and algal blooms. And in the atmosphere, clouds, rainfall, heat, smoke, dust storms, ozone, and air quality. These data feed our daily weather forecasts helping weather models see further into the future to predict severe weather like hurricanes, tornadoes, and snowstorms, and monitor our changing climate. In 2022, NASA and NOAA will launch JPSS-2, the next mighty bird in the JPSS program. Well, this has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie. Hopefully, hopefully we'll be back next Wednesday. <laughs>